When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. I am your host, John Jewett. And I am your co-host, Luke Miller. Our mission is to elevate the physique coaching standard. And deliver the highest level of competitors to the stage. Let's jump into today's episode. Finding your maximum testosterone dosage. Should this be the first question we ask? Like, what's the max you can take? And uh, why we brought this up, you know, Luke and I for today's topic is uh, just the general overview of framing out how you would build a PED stack design for males. A lot of this starts with testosterone and to move through what's the lower dose to the high dose. How do you manage the side effect profiles and how we do it from a coaching aspect, working with beginners all the way up to, you know, higher level Olympia athletes and to really know the, the entire encompassing thing of how to manage all aspects. It really does start with testosterone. So this is what we wanted to talk about today is for one, give you some overview of like, what are all the tools that we have in the toolbox for an enhanced bodybuilder and then hone in on the starting point of testosterone and where to go from there. And if you're, if you're starting out or even as an advanced individual uh, coming into this and trying to find a, uh, maybe a, a risk reduction way to still pursue your goals and just have some, you know, logical rationale of how you're going through programming PEDs. Yeah. And I think the conversation starts with a results oriented conversation as we kind of phase into androgens is that we can make sure that the methodologies within this overview still lead to the results to the level that you compete at. We're just going to be covering like that introductory portion of this framework. And that's all going to start with the androgen receptor, right? Because this is where we, we look at our main influence and in influencing hypertrophy with PEDs and obviously test is going to be the base. Now, we need to answer that question why before we go into some of the other androgens because it it sets the framework for building the rest of the compound selection around test. And the main benefits for having test as our base is going to be not only its influence on the androgen receptor, but some of the conversions into estradiol and DHT that we can see as beneficial for the athlete. So, on the estradiol side, we obviously have improvements in recovery capacity, nutrient partitioning. It can even be very beneficial for like lipid profiles. And it's going to have a major role in overall long-term health management as well when we start to look at cardiovascular issues that can arise with PED use. And it's a really big integral part of risk mitigation, even if you're in the higher echelons of PED use. So this is kind of the main start point for why we choose test as that base before we start going into discussing other androgens. And then on the DHT side, we obviously have like for the guys like 
getting into being able to have a boner because the DHT is going to be beneficial for that, right? Everybody wants a normal sex drive. But this is where it starts. This is where the conversation around androgen starts. It's always test because it's going to be our primary for mediating those benefits from the conversion into those two. Yeah, and, you know, on that topic too, like there is studies out there where they use testosterone and they they block estrogen with an aromatase inhibitor. And, and this is different studies. Like there's some in like in brain tissue showing that estradiol's effects is what makes testosterone neuroprotective. It's not necessarily the testosterone molecule itself, but it's the conversion to estradiol that actually has a neuroprotective effect. So if we're using another compound that doesn't have that estradiol component, you're potentially taking off the table some of the beneficial and protective risk reduction aspects that you could have within your cycle design. Um, other things go for even the lipid profile using and lowering estradiol. That's also what has protective effects for cardiovascular system. Uh, same thing goes with, with, with the kidneys as well. So that is a, a protective aspect that testosterone brings from its estradiol component. Um, you mentioned like DHT too, like absolutely boners that we definitely want that to happen. <laughs> definitely want that to happen. Um, also, uh, you know, DHT, like pure DHT has been, been used for depressive disorders too. So it has a role in how the brain works and mood. So uh, too low of DHT can be detrimental for mood. And hey, in turn, that's probably secondary to, um, you know, erectile dysfunction ED. So there's those components. Absolutely. Right. Um, other, other things around it too, is that it's, uh, something your body already physiologically manages. Uh, it's relatively bioidentical. It's also something that we could learn from as a beginner. You could take X amount of testosterone, could go draw your lab work and you can see what that serum level is, what the response is. There's no other compounds you can do that with. So if you're using a SARM for your first cycle. You can't say when I take X amount of SARM, it does this to my, to my serum level and I can see this response. Like we can directly test for what that response of testosterone is. Uh, so we also have like really good long-term data on the safety profile around testosterone. Now, once you go higher, yeah, you're absolutely going into risk territory, but um, for, for those reasons, it makes it, makes a lot of sense for it to be the first compound that would be deployed. Now, I've seen other rationales around using orals as your your first introduction as it's like a low barrier to entry and, you know, could be or a SARM even for for that matter. Um issue around this is like, hey, what what are we doing long term? Um cuz usually in those instances, it just leads to doing it more. Uh, and that eventually will lead to you having to require testosterone for most people at some point. Um, also, those years of using, say, an oral, then coming off, um, you couldn't really have a long-term uh, oral deployment to have substantial growth happen. And so usually you run into health detriments in your lab work. If you're trying to do like you know a 15-week oral cycle, that is enough to elicit that progress. It, it just isn't the way to go about it then without having like estradiol present likely not having like dht present that's where you run into issues while the, the oral cycle just doesn't make sense now 
if you had someone like, hey, I just want to try it for four weeks and then realize it's not for you and you want to move on, I would really want to make sure the psychology of that person is in the place where probably should never even start to begin with. Like, uh, I could see this being like the 19-year-old that gets something from like the supplement store or SARM just to use without it really going through like the maturity side of like, hey, what is my long-term goals here? Like, should I be putting this in my body? Yeah, I think the other thing too is like you're still getting shut down with it as well, right? And so you're going to get to a point where you're going to need replacement therapy because you are lowering that signaling from the hypothalamic pituitary for actual natural testosterone production. So you, you're going to not only bring in more risk from a health management perspective with oral usage, but you're also getting that shutdown of natural production. So it's it's like a double whammy where again, you need to be analyzing that client from a psychological standpoint to see if they fully understand what, what they're actually getting into and what's their why behind it. Right. Because they just may not be ready for that next step. Yeah. People think like the, in a, the ejectable route is, is the, the big step up. Right. Um, but, but really potentially it could easily be the, the, the reduced of reduction in that uh, aspect around safety that, um, cause I, I took like a pro hormone when I was like younger before I ever did an injectable just because, just because it was accessible. Um, at that, at that time you could go in a supplement store and buy something like that. And I was completely naive, but what did that lead to? Yeah. Having lower testosterone levels and also requiring testosterone. Um, and you know, the same thing goes if you were used testosterone, say you did it for 16 weeks and you're like, Hey, you know what? This really isn't for me. Like, I don't want to do this. Even for that short duration and a younger individual, like, you could probably restore your levels and be completely fine and carry on your life. Um, but so that's that's where uh, I still see testosterone having the the place over using, like, something like a SARM or oral. Also, for the other reasons that even if you're getting a SARM, you, you can't really be 100% that you actually are going to be getting the actual compound that they are saying that it is. So not to get off on that tangent, but I think like it's a, it's a point to bring up. Um, I understand the argument for like just using that first. And uh, yeah, truthfully, you probably do that for a couple of weeks and live your life. If you decide not to do it and be fine. So, uh, but again, this is like, it's a big commitment. Um, and I understand being young and risk adverse. It's conceptually doesn't really sink in. Uh, but this is like, hey, I want to be a, a professional bodybuilder and, and do this for the next 10 years. Like, this is the route that Luke and I are, are talking on and, and speaking to. Um, it doesn't have to even you want to compete, um, you know, but I, I I wouldn't probably go down that route if I wasn't going to be competing, you know, truthfully. Yeah, I so would. I think we I think we should probably loop, loop this back, Luke, to like what are what is the other the framework of usage right for these other compounds since we talked about some to not start with. Yeah, yeah, for uh, sure. So when we when we stay in the topic of androgens, the next conversation is like what's outside of testosterone. So typical ones that are often brought up are DHT derivatives, which are like Masteron and Primo. You're gonna have your 19 Nors, which are NPP and Trin. And then there's some others that are often brought up as well. So uh, EQ is a common one um, that are all brought up within the same breadth, right? So we need to start to narrow the scope and what's on the table, what's not on the table. 
And a lot of this starts with the next step being DHT derivative because past testosterone, that's going to be what's going to be our primary driver of total milligram usage due to the fact that it's not going to be converting into estradiol or converting into DHT. And it's going to help mediate some estrogen control with the inclusion of it in play. Yes. So once you have this point in testosterone where you, and we'll get into like adjusting this dosage that at some point with bringing up testosterone, it's going to be a problem that you're going to have estrogen based side effects or maybe DHT based side effects. Uh, This could range from usually for, for men, it's going to be gynecomastia. That's like the main one that, that comes into play, but other one might be like uh, just having high anxiety, difficulty sleeping. Uh, you might have uh, high libido, but but ED that could be um, high estrogen based. With with DHT, I mean, if you're a men's physique or class physique guy, like you're trying to keep that hairline and look all look beautiful, <laughs> that ship has sailed for Luke and I a long time ago. <laughs> they didn't have classic physique when we started, right, Luke? It's just the ugly category. It's the only one we fitted in. All we all, yeah, all we had was. Uh, it's like you, you're ugly. Like it doesn't matter. Like just go ugly. So uh, those things weren't weren't in our minds much. Um, but but either way, like I, I see it more common in those classes. Like hey, hairline and the look is is extremely important. So uh, not that DHT is the root of all this issue, um, but that might be a consideration for someone in in the management of acne hair. Another conversation for another day. But back to the point, like once you reach that tolerable amount of testosterone to fill in the rest of the milligram gap, like Luke said, uh, it could be usually coming to the DHT derivative. Because uh, if you looked at the clinical literature for these DHT derivatives like Primabolin and Masteron, they're some of the most benign drugs around because they were brought mm-hmm. about for uh, females. That's what who they were made for. Um, and this is early back to treating uh, breast cancer and trying to mediate the effects of estrogen. So we have this amount of estrogen present, and that can be um, promoting tumor growth in the breast for these women. They were trying to offset it with androgens. So they didn't want an androgen that would convert to estrogen. They just wanted pure pure androgens. So that's when Primabol and Amasteron came about. So they, and they're even side effect wise, they're, they're, pretty benign for a female. So in turn, for a male, these are also relatively uh, more benign compounds. So this is why um, this could be the secondary aspect that we add in if you have a higher milligram requirement to grow. You'd have X amount of Primabolin or Masteron to then fill in that gap. Now that's going to take you very, very far. And that milligram amount could be filled as high as it needs to go to continue seeing growth to occur. But then there's going to be some other compounds on the table as well that you brought up, mm. Luke, like the 19 Norse. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, you bring up EQ, um, you know, EQ being a, a, t- a testosterone derivative, uh, it's heavily used, in a, and we have, we have both personally used it. And before, like, you know, getting more into research and and others putting out more, um, you know, evidence-based practice in PDs. And you, 
I almost put like quotations around evidence based because it's not like hypertrophy training evidence based. Like we don't still have these these studies that are um, you know looking at you put X amount of like training into someone and it comes out with this hypertrophy outcome. It's usually looking back at like you know a study done in a disease population and 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 or it's uh, very much like cell culture studies. So it's. And, and it's heavily based around what we do coaching wise and experiential wise. So with, with uh Boldenone equipoise, um, there is a line of evidence. It's not a big line of evidence. So I realize the criticism that comes from it, that it, it, it very well may be more renal toxic and drive more oxidative stress. It's also a compound that they never been approved for human usage. So gone through all the normal testing that it would have for like say primabolin or Masteron, the toxicology testing, stage one, two, three of clinical trials in humans. Bolinone hasn't gone through any of that. When we have other compounds that have, and so you say, well, what does Boldenone bring to the table that maybe primabolin or Masteron, you know, does it bring? And some people say, oh, well, it, it really gives you good pumps because it drives up your red blood cell count. Like, well, they all do that. <laughs> That's uh, something that all, all these drugs share. And also, that's usually just elevating blood pressure. And another component around it is I usually have guys that have pretty high anxiety potentially with using Equipoise. And uh, some of that line of studies we talked about, uh, it, it does have potentially some influence around increasing oxidative stress in the brain. Um, and then also with equipoise, some people bring up, well, it, it's really great for appetite. And my, my challenge to that is like, gosh, I don't think that should be our, our first go-to because of using a drug to drive up appetite. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, usually guys aren't deploying it when they're like, oh man, appetite's low. Let's add an equipoise. It's usually the, the right on, right off the bat. It's already in place. There hasn't really been a, a rationale talk through of why you're putting it in, in the early part of an off season. So it's, it's one that we haven't used in our PED design because of all the above, uh, ma mainly because it seems like it potentially could be a riskier compound. But I think now, Luke, I mean, maybe you want to jump into, um, you know, when the 19 NORS or the other phase dependent drugs might be in place. Cause that's guys, that's pretty much our, our base here. It's very simple. And that's, if you look at most pros and, uh, that's kind of how they're designing their their cycles. There's usually testosterone base, one other compound that's filling in most of the other milligram amount. There might be a third compound, which we'll talk about, that can kind of come in and come out. Uh, but if you're looking at these these cycle designs that are, you know, a drug list of you know five, six different steroids and all these you know unique ones that aren't the mainstay, it's just not what's happening. Yeah, and I think it's applicable across all risk levels too, right? So it's applicable to the highest level of physique competition where the highest amount of risk is being taken all the way down to like really low risk. And, and we can kind of flex that model up and down. Now the, the caveat or the star to the differences in some of these levels of risk could potentially be the 19 nor conversation because what does it bring to the table and why are we, why are we using it? So Trimbalone's very commonly talking about, within a contest prep setting, primarily its influence around the glucocorticeptor and improving the visuals because of that. So we see trimbalone deployment primarily being 
used in that contest prep setting for mediation at the glucocorticoid receptor to kind of combat the high cortisol environment that the end of prep can can be right the the primary thing with trimbolone in all season that i see from an anecdotal perspective is people like the strength progressions with it like they like the feeling that trend gives them that superhuman feeling which for me you might you might be chasing a psychological profile there more than you're actually getting a response in that I see that being more of a, oh, I've got trend in, I'm going to be bull strong, right? Where if they're actually tracking their data and you're escalating the total milligrams up to where they need to be, then that's going to be plenty to keep them progressing within a gym setting. You can reference the first podcast where we talk about progressing within the gym and in that section. Now, another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The other side of the 19 North Conversations NPP and... My main thing with NPP as far as like where does it fit within the conversation is we do have some, it's subjective data, but we have data that shows subjective improvements in the way that joints feel within the participants with nandrolone usage. This is where I see my main benefit with NPP usage or decadorbolin usage um, within an off-season setting is when performance is getting to the highest metrics on the back end of a contest prep, or, or sorry, back end of an off-season, and we need some of that subjective benefit. Now, a lot of this comes down to client psychology, and this is where when we look at the 19 NORs on the table, the specificity of use and what it actually brings to the table from a mechanistic standpoint is very applicable for trim blown in a contest prep, but in an all-season setting is probably not quite as bringing more to the table mechanistically. It's more bringing more to the table psychologically because a lot of people we're coaching coming in with associations attached to these compounds of, oh man, my joints feel great when I have nandrolone in at 100 milligrams or I have nandrolone in at 200 milligrams. And so that client is attached to that thought process. It takes some education to get them out of it, but we can still gain some of that subjective benefit on the back end of off-season pushes where it could potentially be most needed. Yeah, I think it's important to bring up this point, and it's a hard one, I think, for people to digest because of the subjective information around, like, hey, I use Nandrolone. Like, I felt like I really blew up in size on that, and it, it, it could drive a lot of water retention. So uh, you think, like, is it actually tissue or is it water? But you know, there, if you, if you, the, the big thing, and I've heard, you know, some other really big bodybuilders say this is, is it eventually it just comes down to the total milligram amount you're using per week. And I, I do believe that to be true. And you can confirm this and even some, some research studies where they're not the ones, one's a rodent study, but it's using looking at seven steroids at different dosages and growth of this muscle and in the, in the rat to keep it very simple. Uh, and basically like 
there was no significant difference in any of these seven different steroids for growth of this muscle in the in the rat. And so what we would say from that is like on a milligram per milligram basis, all these steroids relatively grow muscle tissue at about the same rate. Now, where you might feel a difference is that some might be more strength promoting. But remember from our first podcast on, on, on this channel that that strength gain doesn't necessarily mean muscle gain. Um, and so, and then also they can differentiate a lot in side effect profile. And so the side effect profile is really what's guiding our decision and how to fill in that total milligram amount that you need to grow. So what we bring up with, with these 19 nors is that some of the, the beauty and things that we love about them are also the detriment to them as well. So like Luke was mentioning about, the glucocorticoid receptor and managing cortisol, cortisol being this, this stress hormone that can cause muscle breakdown, which is where it really shines in a contest prep scenario. Well, the, the, the bad about that is influence on that receptor is also in the brain. And trimbolone has also been shown to uh, potentially be highly neurotoxic an increased beta amyloid deposition, which is this protein that is associated with dementia. So what does the long-term look like of using something like Trimbolone? Um, I can't say. It's kind of a question mark. There's not a lot of human usage data Trimbolone, especially not long-term. So we would say like for this compound, hey, let's use it when it really shines in contest prep and save it for that time and, and limit its use. Let's fill in the rest of the milligram amount with less risky compounds to grow. Now, the, the same conversation could go with Nangelone. I feel like Nangelone is a little bit less uh, risk than uh, Trimbolone. Yeah. Um, however, point being though, milligram for milligram, you can still get the same out of another compound. And what I see with Nangelone is it's a it can be a mess to manage side effect wise for a client because it binds in all these different sites, and, uh, estrogen receptor, progesterone. Some people just always feel super anxious with it. Uh, psychologically, it can be really tough. Uh, so it could be a much simpler way to manage a client just with a testosterone and DHT, but. If someone has like a, a good psychological aspect with, with Nangelone and also sees the subjective joint aspect around it. Also, you know, a consideration, Luke, is like what is your even your access to these compounds? Is yeah. Prima Bolin is highly faked or underdosed. Uh, here in the U.S., you could get a farm-grade prescription of DECA. So I, I might see someone wanting to fill in some milligram amount because, hey, uh, potentially getting a, a U.S.-produced uh, farm-grade steroid, it probably could be less risky than getting something that's very much unknown. But but back to the point, I agree. Like it, these, these are kind of phase-dependent compounds uh, and should just be deployed as such. And the other one moving from there would be all the various orals that we have. And, uh, you know, for how we're using them, I, I never use orals at the off-season. Um, as, as these will quickly just cause detriment to your lipid profile and just doesn't lead to being able to string lots of weeks together of growth because health markers just get deranged so quickly. Some people just, it's, it's a lot of that psychological lines, right? Like, hey, you add an oral and you get this pretty good bump and like feeling fuller and, and strength. 
but it, it just leads to a, a short-term outcome and not that long-term tissue accrual. Like, hey, in the off-season, just use more injectable. It's as simple as that than using, like, oral. Um, so now in a, in a prep scenario, this is when the orals kind of really shine because they can come into play really fast. And when we're having, like, that performance decline on prep, that might be the sign of, like, okay, now it's time to use an oral because I won't have time to bring up my injectable amount to have that come into fruition for performance. And so then we have a, a list of compounds and look at if I've extensively gone through like um, just a, just a one podcast, just on oral usage. Um, but pretty much for us, and we want to get into testosterone at some point back to it, but for us, it's uh, kind of that list gets limited for males around uh, Anivar um, kind of really leading into that one. Uh, Winstrol, uh, halotestin and anadrol and some of the other compounds not mentioned just because of risk and they don't bring much else to the table that we couldn't get out of those four compounds and i guess provirone would be another one potentially um and you know i don't know how far you want to go into the oral conversation luke but i, I think that covers enough of like why why and when these go in otherwise we're going to be in a rabbit hole about yeah <laughs> oral deployment so I think we just conceptually bring up non-androgenics and prophylactics as like a bridge into test real quick. So non-androgenics, what are it? It's uh, ways to mediate progress outside of the androgen receptor. So things that commonly fall in this category, just to give a brief overview. And we'll, we'll do separate podcasts where we dive into these deeper. But growth hormone, insulin, injectable L-carnitine, clenbuterol, or typically the common ones brought up under this category, right? This is a, a fairly large category. Um, you can view this as synergy. So we're using these alongside androgens to improve the overall outcomes and potentially lower the need for androgens on the androgen side of the equation, right? Especially when we start looking at growth hormone and IGF-1 um, and then using insulin alongside that to kind of get that synergistic effect with the anabolic usage that we're using will be where most of the non-androgenics start to come into play. We obviously have some in there that would be beneficial for fat loss as well when we talk about injectable L-carnitine and clenbuterol, which also have influence from a progress perspective um, as far as like synergy and being able to mediate hypertrophy outcomes. But that's primarily... Uh, go ahead. I was going to say probably thyroid hormone would be considered. Yeah, thyroid hormone be too. considered within that as well. Um, I more look at that as like replacement therapy within the needs for contest prep, but, or, or off seasons for the client that needs it from a th overall thyroid downregulation. But that would kind of cover your non-androgenics as far as what are we using to mediate physique outcomes alongside these androgens? And that's going to be probably separate podcasts on each one. We've covered a lot of these already, but kind of diving deeper into those and how that works for synergy. And then if you want to just cover prophylactics real quick before we kind of head into to test, I think that'd be. Yeah. I, you know, when I, when I first started, uh, it used to just be like, you only took anabolic steroids. Like there was like, you wanted to save like growth hormone and, and insulin as like your ACE card. Like once you turn pro, then you add those in and you'll like, you know, unlock Pandora's box of growth. and It'll just be f insane. Um, so you drove up, anabolics pretty high just alone that's all you did um you know when i finally introduced growth hormone i was 
going into my first pro show. I'm, I'm sorry, going into uh, my first national show. And I was on prep. And then that off season, I had it in place. And, and it, it, of course, it worked really well. Um, what I should have done, like, retrospectively, is had it in way earlier. So uh, to be able to form those synergies with the anabolics, and I probably wouldn't have need to use as much steroid. And, and by far, like, in a male like the steroid you use is going to be the most deleterious thing for your health. So these other non-androgens that we're bringing up are definitely lower risk, but I will say with lower risk also comes, they're, they're not going to bring about the same effect as like a steroid would. Um, so you, you don't, they're not going to be like a, an equivalent as far as that goes. So growth hormone is not the game changer. Insulin's not the game changer. Like, I would say steroids absolutely are. However, with those other non-androgens together, you could definitely form the synergies to get a little bit more out before you're really having to drive up more of your, your anabolic amount. But yeah, we can discuss that on a, at a later date. But for uh, other things to consider within like what's in your toolbox, um, and, and Luke and I bring up like prophylactic compounds and by a prophylactic which means something that would be a, a preventative drug in place for those uh, health risks that might be coming about by using steroids and some of the main risks that come about with using steroids is um, higher inflammation oxidative stress in the body and insulin resistance and what that means really the for outcomes what do we see bodybuilders run into it's heart issues right um, high, high blood pressure, increasing size of the heart, leading to um, cardiomegaly, leading to heart failure, uh, uh, increases of cholesterol, which, you know, atherosclerosis occurring. Like these are some of the primary things we see bodybuilders die from early on. Now, there's also renal failure that we see as well, and that might be a little later in life. Uh, and there's a kind of a question mark of like, hey, could there be a risk factor for neurodegenerative diseases like dementia later on. And, and, and that uh, we just, we don't have that long-term data to really say yet. So when I say like, Hey, maybe we should have something in place that could mitigate those effects. So if you're running into high blood pressure issues, this might be, you should probably have a blood pressure medication that's getting put in place and why we should be monitoring blood pressure weekly as enhanced individuals. Um, and, and there's, there's a list of medications you could go with. A lot of guys you know, are going with ARBs, um, to, to block, um, you know, angiotensin aldosterone, which is causes some of that water retention, which is, uh, what's driving up blood pressure, um, and just higher levels of, of angiotensin also drive inflammation, oxidative stress in the body. So using a blood pressure medication like an ARB, it can lower inflammation, Lower, lower oxidation, it protects the kidney, it protects the brain, it protects the heart. Now, does everyone need one? No. It's, it's going to be dependent on how your response is and also as you elevate the risk, likely that's going to be to be in place for a lot of guys. Um, now, I also brought up like insulin resistance being present. Uh, as you get a large individual, requires large amounts of food, requires larger amounts of growth hormone, and also insulin. We want to protect our ability to partition fuel, partition glucose, and also the ability to oxidize fatty acids. This is when the conversation around metformin has come about. And I realize some guys are like, oh, no, it's going to stop your gains, man. I, 
listen, it, it with how much androgen and growth hormone and everything you're putting in, it's by far is not stopping your gains. What's going to lead into you having to pull back while you're pushing up is health uh, marker derangement. Metformin is helping you so you can extend that growth phase out. Um, or use, use berberine that, you know, some people uh, prefer that for a GI, um, aspect, not, not causing like, uh, diarrhea or some of the issues that some people get w- around metformin. Um, so like the, those are two compounds that would be consideration to just try to lower the risk for someone that's using, uh, steroids. And insulin is one where, you know, we brought it up as it has an enhancement aspect, but also it has a, a protective aspect too when you are getting to really high food volumes and higher growth from amount. And you're just passing what the what the pancreas is supposed to produce insulin-wise. You could supplement a little bit to just remove the strain from the pancreas having to put out so much insulin. So those are three things, and those, aren't, those three things don't replace all the other things you should be doing to manage and reduce your risk while using PDs from lifestyle components, sleep, nutrition, cardio, to other supplements you could be utilizing. Like, again, just each of those variables I mentioned is a podcast on its own. But I, but in the in the strain of talking about um, pharm- pharmaceuticals and drugs, that's the ones that I wanted to bring up today around yeah. it. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> the reason insulin gets brought up in that category is because when you look at like type two diabetes literature and like the long-term health outcomes within that population, that's not fully representative of what these large off-season bodybuilders are, but it's our closest thing within literature to look at. So that's kind of where that gets brought up. So I think that's our cliff notes, PED 101 androgen and, or all PED considerations overview before we go into how to find your testos, John. Agreed. And I guess within that, we'll talk about AI, CIRMs. That's what I figured that would get brought up in the maybe, max. Maybe like dopamine, two agonists, things like that. Things that manage things that manage estrogen and prolactin, uh, yeah. DHT. So that's probably the strain of like, yeah. The testos. Your, your testos. Um, so, so the question I get off the cuff is where do I start, right? Now, this start point looks different relative to your experience level. Because at the end of the day, we have to produce results. And there's a lot of intermediate to advanced guys coming into our our realm that don't know the testos that they can tolerate without an AI or a DHT. So how you go about this looks a little different depending on the level of client. But to start, John brought up a point that's going to be our biggest tool in that test is the one that you can plug in, pull lab work, see the, see the results on paper and then go back to the drawing board and continue on. And this is a lot of where it starts, is monitoring for estrogenic-based side effects, plugging in the test dose at where your replacement therapy is to start, and then titrating up on a week-to-week basis, and then seeing how well you tolerate that. So what this commonly would look like is, let's say someone's test dose for replacement therapy is 175 milligrams. They start at the 175, they titrate that up by 50 milligrams during that next week. They hold that test dose for three to four weeks, see how they tolerate that elevation in test. You could even pull labs to see how far it pulls them up if you want. If they tolerate that well, you can then take another 50 milligram bump. Now, 
this method of finding your testos and how high you can go with with managing the estrogen side of the equation is how you would do this for a beginner, okay? Because they're going to have a really low total milligram need for producing results. You could do this with intermediate to advanced, but you are missing out on the early portions of the escalation where we need higher levels of total milligram and their baseline milligram totals are going to be higher. So this is like the introduction to finding your testos is you need lab work of your baseline to know where your replacement dose is or what your baseline dose puts you at so that you can then see the feasibility of titrating up as you go along the weeks. Yeah, we're, we're starting out like, I mean, most of the guys coming to us are already current users. But if you do have someone that's like, hey, I'm natty, I'm, I'm, t- I'm ready to go to the dark side. Uh, and at some point we, we, you know, at least we were there. And it used to always be like 500 milligram of testosterone was per week was the start point because it almost made it seem like anything less than that's just not worth even doing. Um, and then what happens is you start at 500 mg per week and you're like, oh man, like, What's going on with my nipple? And uh, you can't manage side effects. You're all new to this. Like you're, you're an inexperienced beginner. Then 12 weeks down the road, you stop that and you do like a PCT. And you know, I don't know why. It's just because at 12 weeks, that's what you did. And then you kind of re- keep repeating that process. But what I would say is like anything going beyond your natural level is absolutely going to be driving up uh, muscle tissue potentially. So it's good to have like a nat- your natty base of where you started at. And then true TRT, it starts at 100 milligram per week. So I know those clinics out there doing two, 300 milligram per week. Like that's not true TRT. 100 milligram per week is the starting point. So where I would say to start usually for someone is at 200 mix per week. With that in mind that we absolutely are trying to drive up progress and become bodybuilders. And what I find is for the majority of people, 200 milligram per week is pretty well tolerated. Um, and then you start there, you can pull labs in four or five weeks and like, Hey, if you're growing great, you're seeing results, just, just keep going. Like just keep riding that out. Um, at some point that might start to slow. Then you make that escalation of 50 megs and ride that out. And you just keep going and going until at some point you'll have, you'll run into a point where like you go up 50 megs, you're like, Oh man, uh, I'm starting to feel like maybe my nipple a little sensitive. Maybe like I feel like a little bit more anxious. Then you just pull back to the 50 milligram amount that you were tolerating previously. And there, there you go. There's your baseline of test of what you can tolerate. And what, what Luke and I have found like for individuals is, is most, uh, if I had averaged out, it's probably somewhere between three to 400 milligram for, for where guys could really tolerate without using some type of estrogen blocker. Now I have guys that are super sensitive that they're around like 150 milligram. That's like the extreme. Um, while I have other guys that, you know, top into the 400 milligram, but it changes, right? Once we start bringing in other DHT derivatives and also the phase that someone might be in. Yep. That's kind of where I kind of teed up the intermediate advanced client, because when you look at that client, the total milligram uses you're going to need within an off-season phase to make progress. I mean, you're looking at 1,500, 1,800, 2,200, 2,400 milligrams total compound use for that athlete. Yeah. You can't take eight weeks to find your max testosterone only and just titrate up 50 milligrams each, right? So 
the way that looks and kind of how I go about escalating on that end is I'm, a lot of times their baseline dosage is somewhere between three to 400 milligrams total, whether that's all test or whether that's test in a DHT. So I'm pulling labs on that baseline dose. So let's say commonly, like a lot of guys will sit at 300 tests, 100 milligrams DHT in the advanced realm, right? That's kind of where they, they hang out at as a baseline. I'm seeing how much estrogen elevation I'm getting from that. And then I will start to titrate up the DHT primarily as a as the main milligram driver across the first four to five weeks. And then once I start to increase that DHT load, then I'll start taking 50 milligram progressions every two to four weeks based on how they're, they're tolerating it. Now I do lean towards the four to five weeks mark on test progressions just to see it fully get up to serum levels and how they're managing it. And also the potential for a DHT to not be fully DHT. And that's why I start with DHT only is because the reality of underground bodybuilding is that not all the time is Mastron or Primo fully Mastron or Primo. And it can yeah. be cut with test. And if I keep their test dose the same the first four to five weeks and only escalate DHT, I'm really just trying to find out is there any chance that that's going to be cut with a test in that or not. And that would be... Not necessarily the ideal on paper, but the reality of coaching is I'm only escalating that DHT to find that out in most cases. So when that's because I know that's happened with you and you, what are what are things that you've noticed in that client where because I know this has probably happened to a lot of guys. Well, Luke, what do I do? Like, what if my stuff isn't real? How do I even know that? Um, what were things you were noticing in that client when that was occurring? Yeah, so um, obviously like estrogenic-based sides, like nipple sensitivity, um, you'll actually see fluid retention go up fairly aggressively. Now, we know that PEDs in general have net influence on renin, angiotensin, aldosterone systems. So we can see net you know, uh, body weight go up as a representation of that. However, it's a lot more drastic in nature. So it's going to be like large changes in the visuals fairly quickly because of that water retentive nature. I've even seen people with like super high estrogenic uh, based reactions. Like, so getting into really high estrogen levels very fast, get blood pressure mediation because of estrogen's net total influence on that uh, water side of the equation for blood pressure. Um, so nipple sensitivity, um, even like issues with uh, acne coming up faster than usual for that client. And then uh, ED issues as well. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, pulling labs might be insightful. Again, uh, if then if you have like off your previous lab work, where your test levels, your testosterone level was at on that testosterone level, and it's way now way off the chart, that might be indicative along with estradiol that potentially that compound is not what it is. Now, what what do you do with that? Right? It's like, well, let's let's switch out to a different source and. Uh, potentially, hopefully, you're you're able to send some of the stuff off for HPLC testing, which is is a thing that you can do, or you fight try to find some type of UG lab where you had some type of third party testing, like and where where your buddies have shared it. <laughs> um, now, like using like the the Roid tests, uh, those are tough. Like I've seen the color schemes in some of these things and try to use them myself, and it's just really hard to differentiate sometimes in that. So 
usually I'm leaning into to, to pulling just to a, a different compound sometimes. You you uh you you did bring up something, Luke, like with with the advanced guy coming in, um, you know, they are they are advanced, so they, they should probably have some insight of what they've done and what they've tolerated. So I can look at like what their past cycle design was too. That's true. And as also well. Uh, yeah, and also if they had like an AI present, and then I, I can get an idea of like, okay, it was this much test with an AI. Like, I'm not going to use the AI be, and and just bring test down X amount. So I can use some insight around that uh, to start to at least build out potentially where we could go. Um, and you know, with that being said, like, well, what? Why are you not using the AI? Like, well, what do you create with testosterone and aromatase inhibitor? Something that's going to block the estrogen conversion it's like you're you're basically making primabolin or you're making masteron um with using an ai you're creating more testosterone that just doesn't aromatize and that's exactly what primabolin or masteron does so uh yeah just my suggestion is like well why don't we just use primabolin or masteron and not use the ai when we do see using the ai and lowering estrogen which a lot of times guys overcorrect and see estrogen that is very very low which is, is a compound that has a lot of the protective aspects for a PD user. So uh, the suggestion here is just don't use the AI and then bring in the rest of the DHT derivative to offsession. And what, what we do find too is that just like we, we mentioned earlier with, with you that uh, low, low breast cancer literature when they're using androgens like preambola to offset estrogen, usually guys can tolerate more estrogen with a higher androgen load. So we do find that like, if you say you were um, lower baseline tolerating 300 milligram, if you get that DHT level high enough, you might be someone that can go up to 400 milligram, but you wouldn't be able to tolerate 400 milligram when the DHT was lower. So that might be the dose that you have to pull back to in these kind of between phases. I mean, I'll, I'll speak for myself. Like um, I, I like, within a push phase where a DHT is up to 1500 mg per week, like I can tolerate 700 mg of testosterone per week. Now in a, in a minute, in like a, a phase between like 300 milligram is, is what I can be on for one. It's not that I couldn't tolerate more estradiol. It's just, I don't need more to retain tissue in those phases. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that. I guess that's the the general gist of like why we wouldn't need an AI with how we're managing the cycle design. However, there might be some short term acute deployment of one, right? Yep, absolutely. Um, and then I want to bring it back to injection frequency and proviron after we cover that because I think that's the next step. But I do think that with the AI CERM deployment conversation, uh, where we see its utility is because I think saying that things are never useless is not a productive conversation. It's maybe more so like, where can it be used is in the instance that things estradiol starts to get too high. we start experiencing side effects and we just took our, our last test progression up 50 milligrams. You get two to three weeks in, you're seeing the issues. You can take a 10 day deployment of either one of these. Technically, ideally I prefer more like a Reloxfin or a Nolvidex in that situation. Um, for, for 10 days, manage the side effects so we don't get issues. Change the total compound load. So 
if we took someone up to 350 milligrams test and that's the progression where they saw the issues, you pull that back down to the previous test dose that they were managing fine. You can make up that milligram progression progression with the DHT low going up. So if you took 50 mg from test, you could bring the DHT up 50 milligrams and let that ride out to, to a more stable place. And then upon removal of that, you'll be in a place where you can tolerate that, that test value. So, um, that's typically the main, I don't want to say only, the main situation where that's being used because we don't want some of the health detriment of long-term AI serum usage. Yeah, it, it has, it, it can have its place. It's just, we see a lot of cycles laid out where it's just assumed that you're going to have to have an AI and a serum already. Like I see like cycles given that's, it's like 1200 megs of tests per week. You need one milligram of Remedex every day. You need 20 milligrams of Novodex every day. And it's just, it's almost, it's just very cookie cutter. It's what's given out. There's been no assessment done of what does that person need and in, in, how do they individually respond to that? And then you have a personalized cycle design. It, it's just, everyone gets the same thing and it, it can work. And that's the thing. It it does work. Um, drugs work, right? Take a bunch of steroids. Like it's going to do something. However, uh, that could lead to more health detriment in the long term. And if you want to be great at bodybuilding, you have to be able to do this for a, a long period of time. So this is where this these minor things that are you could even be maybe major things we're talking about here to reduce risk, but still see just as much growth and and. Honestly, I would say even more because if you're managing your health well, you're going to be able to extend these phases out for a, for a longer duration of time. Um, another thing to bring up within this strain is, uh, you know, some people are using like uh, a dopamine two agonist. Uh, people have higher prolactin levels. Um, prolactin kind of has this uh, permissive role around breast tissue. Uh, it you know. It's, it's actually pretty debatable if it actually would even cause gyno. But I, we had an issue just killing on the, on the J3U forum brought up like, hey, I, I squeeze my nipple and like some fluid comes out. Uh, there's no pain or anything. It's just when I squeeze it, it's, it's an issue. Um, and that could be prolactin related. So uh, just high androgens, high estrogen, um, just stress in general, like training stress could drive up prolactin levels. Um, and it, it's, it's another, one of these assumptive things that if, and I will say like, uh, it comes into place with also the 19 nors like Nandrolone and Trimbolone driving up prolactin that if you're, if you're having, using these things that you have to have something that manages prolactin. And I think a lot of guys, if you never pulled the lab, like you would never even know. So don't just manage a lab just because it's higher, you know, manage the individual and if they're having issues, but at the same time, uh, higher prolactin can be a problem. Some guys can get ED from it. Uh, it could cause maybe a also combined effect with higher estrogen and gyno. But I would say if you manage estrogen really well, you usually won't have issues with prolactin. And if you're having issues with higher 19-NOR usage, reduce the 19-NOR and fill it in with another compound that doesn't give you the issue. That's how I'd manage it, overusing something like capergoline or pramipexol as something that influences your dopamine receptors in the brain and affects your neurochemistry. To me, that's very scary um, because you're looking at uh, 
post-usage. Some people have some depressive disorders and even said like suicidal ideations. Couple that on top of coming off high amounts of androgens that make you feel really good. That could leave someone in a psychologically troubled place. And I just don't think it needs to be there to, to manage with if we're going through a cycle design like what we're laying out here. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I think the last piece of this, just because I have clients that this is the case for them, is the hypersensitive person to testosterone where, like, uh, I think our lowest dose is similar, like 20 migs at EOD is what I have someone on, or not EOD, every day. So that's 140 a week um, is injection frequency and proviron usage. So obviously with all of this, the higher the injection frequency, the more ideal the situation is. Because when we look at like peaks and valleys and serum levels, the higher the injection frequency, the lower that fluctuation is going to be. So rather than kind of through the week, you're going up and then you're kind of getting that drop and then you're going up and then getting that drop. When you like actually plot this on a chart, it actually kind of looks like really small fluctuations in the up and down, which the, the lower we kind of minimate that fluctuation, the less side effects we typically would see. Now, where does Proviron fit in this conversation? We have clients or we've coached clients where the moment they go above that 20 milligrams daily of the test dose, they start experiencing estrogenic based side effects, right? Like it's, it's, it's almost immediate. And the Proviron can fit in as like a 25 milligram daily usage in order for that person to manage that test dose better. Because I've even had one guy where at 140 mg per week, he was still having issues if Proviron wasn't there. And that's where Proviron almost pretty much being pure DHT can really help with the estrogen management for a client like that that is hypersensitive to test inclusion. Yeah, like Proviron's being an oral, it's it's pretty, like the liver toxicity profile's really low on it. Um, 25 milligram daily could go go pretty far. Especially with if you if you have a low testosterone amount, you would have a low estrogen amount, but you also might have a low DHT amount. So you, that person might not get the same libido response that they need. Yep. So Proviron kind of can can fill that that gap well. Um, you mentioned like, hey, the the more stable you can keep your serum levels, you're likely to ha have less uh, peaks in estrogen as well. So you can keep your estradiol more stable. Um, and yeah, if you're able to eject as frequently as you're willing to do would be more ideal. So if you're having issues doing injections twice a week of testosterone, going to like every day or every other day would be, uh, potentially allow you to tolerate a bit more test or just not have side effects on that same amount. Another consideration is a lot of these guys, we go sub sub Q over intramuscular injections with sub Q administration, you have a lower peak level comparatively to intramuscular injections. So again, it just provides a more stable serum level. Um, the area under the curve is the same, like it's going to make you grow the same. That doesn't change. It's just more stable. Now, that you uh, these guys that I, I have in that situation, usually all year round, they just stay sub-Q with test. You can do your other compounds sub-Q as well. But it does cause a problem eventually where some people get some skin reactions um, or more sensitive to the oils, the carriers, or like the benz benzol alcohol in the compound to where they get like big lumps and, and red irritation, which could, it, it's, it's normal per se, but 
not what you really want if you're bodybuilding. So that might be the point where, hey, we have to move to doing like intramuscular injections. But these guys that are sensitive to tests, they might keep doing their test sub-Q and do the other compounds intramuscular as the peaks and valleys with those compounds aren't as problematic for an estrogen management point of view. Yep, absolutely. Well, I think we just took an hour on Cliff Notes PED, find your testos. Yeah. Any, uh, anything else I, to I add? I think leaving it there is a good spot. I mean, that's that covers a lot of ground. And I maybe just like the the overview summary of the thought process behind this is that, you know, as bodybuilders, our main goal is getting on stage and um, competing at the highest level that we're able to do. That's number one. And then to be honest, like secondary from that, we're trying to reduce the risk as much as possible. And, you know, when we're talking about competitive bodybuilding, that's where that kind of does escalate up to where the, the goal supersedes a little bit of the risk. But if you're don't not hitting the competitive stage, that's different. Like I would absolutely put the risk above, above the goal. Um, so when you cross that line of like entering into, Hey, I want to be a pro. Hey, I want to be an Olympian that might shift some, but, but regardless, whether you're, whether, wherever you are, non-competitor or a competitor, let's reduce the risk as much as possible. Like this is what makes complete sense. And we should have a, a thought process around what compounds you're picking, uh, for anabolics, what other non uh, anabolic uh, androgenic like steroid compounds you're using that can drive that process as well, and then what prophylactics you should be having in place to mitigate the side effects, and with that framework in mind, that's where we can have risk reduction and still see out our goals and do this for the long term, and the long term is where you're going to see the the biggest leanest physique that you're trying to obtain. There's lots of guys that have started out going way too hard into using PEDs and they have issues and they burn out and you don't see them anymore. Um, and so we know to get good at this, you got to do it for a long term. So uh, I know this was a lot of information for the <laughs> listeners uh, around a lot of different you know, topics. And there's going to probably be a lot of questions and like, Hey, you said this Luke and John and like, I don't believe that that's bullshit or, you know, whatever, <laughs> it, whatever it may be. That's, that's fine. Like, um, leave it down below in the comment section. I'll answer it. Luke and Luke and I can respond there or it can spur on another podcast where we can discuss a little bit more and inform you. And that's what we're here for. And, and like why we have J3 university to try to, you know, educate and have a, a logical rationale of how we're, we're coaching to high level physique competitors. So we're yeah. here just to try to elevate the sport. So any way that we can help with educating or giving you more knowledge and how we coach and the reasons behind what we do, ask us, you know, and we'll, uh, we'll dive deeper. Absolutely. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's create a better culture of coaches and athletes and everybody will move forward. Right. That's it. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks, y'all, for listening, and we will talk to you next time.